All right, our topic today is out of the books of, book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, the seven congregations. And you see there on the picture, uh, the seven congregations listed. You see out in the water, out in the Mediterranean Sea, you see Patmos, a little dot there. Uh, that is the island where, where John was. And then you see, just going a little northeast of there, is Ephesus, and then Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea in order very interesting, they are geographically in order, right? So if uh, someone was to uh, take a trip from John and deliver the message, let's say, he, he would go from Patmos and hit Ephesus first, and then go in the cycle in the exact order that the letters are listed, or the, the congregations are listed in the Bible. So there's this distinct pattern there, kind of a horseshoe pattern that's taking place. And so these congregations were chosen by God uh, for these messages. Now, it's not because they were the biggest congregations or the most important congregations. Uh, most of them did not receive a, a letter that we have today from Paul. Um, Ephesus did, and uh, the Bible mentions Laodicea receiving a letter from Paul, but we don't have a, a copy of it any longer. Um, but there were other congregations. Antioch was much older than most of these, if not all of these, and, and probably bigger. Um, and uh, Rome probably had a bigger congregation. Jerusalem probably had a bigger congregation than these. So there is a specific reason why these congregations were chosen and this order, kind of choosing this cycle that God has here. And so he's choosing these seven congregations and seven uh, being used a lot in Revelation and a lot in the Bible. We, we see, we'll see here the seven congregations. Last chapter we saw uh, the seven stars and seven menorahs and and uh, then we'll see seven trumpets and seven seals. And so in the Bible, we see the word seven, we see the number seven, uh, right there in the beginning in Genesis chapter one, having to do with God's creation. And into chapter two, God creating the earth in seven days and uh, demonstrating the completion, right? He completed everything and everything was good. It was very good. It was the full creation, everything was done. And, and it had to do with time and so, uh, we see here these sevens in Revelation are a full fulfillment of time prophecy from the time of John through to the end of time as we know it here on earth, just as we saw in the book of Daniel with Daniel chapter 2 going from Daniel's day to the end of time, Daniel 7 doing the same thing from Daniel's time to the end of time, and then Daniel's 8 and 9, same thing, and then 10 and 11, the same thing. And so we're, seeing the sa we're going to see the same pattern here in Revelation. Now these messages to, to these congregations are on seven or several levels. Uh, they, identify, they start with an identification of Yeshua from chapter one. And so that's very good. Again, the focus of this chapter and the focus of the book of Revelation is the revealing of Yeshua the Messiah. And so he begins each description, each little letter to these congregations as a, a message from Yeshua himself or a vision of Yeshua the, himself. We won't spend a lot of time on that because each one of those were described in chapter one that we've already covered last week. And it also talks about the spiritual condition of the congregation, good if any, bad if any. And he will list the, the spiritual condition and then a council of encouragement or rebuke based on their spiritual condition. And then he urges the members to listen to the message and he'll say that same thing uh, to each of the congregations. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Lord says to the congregations and then a promise to the overcomer. And again, that is in each one, a different promise, but a, also a message that each to the overcomer will receive such and such a promise. And so there's a distinct pattern that these letters are taking. And so these messages are given to these congregations for uh, a message to them, to them individually. But again, it's in Revelation, so it's more than just a letter to them, like Paul wrote a letter to Ephesus or wrote a letter to, to those in Rome. Uh, it's more for, well, it was for them, and I believe it describes those congregations. Um, it also is a message for us. So there's a message there that apply to us today. And in all of them, there should be something that we can receive from it or various points in time in our lives. And also, more specifically, in the prophetic timeline covering God's interaction through people who believe in the Bible from the time of John to the end of time. Then when we get to the seven seals, 
right? It was a king who would have a ring and he would seal a document or some uh, political appointee that would make uh, an important, write an important document and seal it with, with again, his signature, his, uh, his seal and identification and delivered to whoever was to go, unbroken, the seal unbroken. And so that will represent the political outline of, from the time of John to the last days, covering basically the same powers that we saw in Daniel. And then there's the seven trumpets. And trumpets were used often in for one of the reasons for announcing a time of war and war preparation to get ready and to rally the troops together. Which is for other things as well, but we see it in times of war. And so the seven trumpets will cover the, the military aspects of the countries, again listed in, under these prophecies, from the time of John to the end of time. So we have the religious aspect, the political aspect, and the military aspect covering world history. Again, as we do in schools um, with, with children, they go through American history and they cover each time, they cover a different aspect. Sometimes it might be politics, sometimes it might be geology, uh, geography, uh, various different aspects of the history of this country. Sometimes it might be the wars, sometimes it might be the presidents, right? So various different aspects. So the Bible is doing the same thing in teaching us and preparing us. So let's get into the first congregation to Ephesus and each one I have a picture of the modern archeology span of the site of what it looks like today. This is a picture of a portion of what the city of Ephesus looked like. To the angel of the congregation of Ephesus, which means desirable. And we will give the definition for each one of these congregations, which also has a spiritual meaning that also applies to that congregation and to the historical time frame that it fits into. So to Ephesus, desirable. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And again, that's the description that we saw in Genesis chapter, or Revelation chapter one. And so the time period for uh, the prophetic timeline that this first congregation symbolically represents from 31 AD to about 100 um, AD, and we'll, We'll see a little bit of reasons why, but it basically takes us until the, the death of all the uh, apostles, disciples, till John was the last one living, till about the time, and it's not a set date exactly, but uh, give or take about that time period. And then we'll see a shift takes place in, again, the religious followers of the Lord uh, in the next segment. And desirable, so desirable fitting that. It was a desirable time. The, the, the disciples were going forth and sharing the gospel and the gospel was spreading. And so the congregation, the description of God's people at that time was desirable. They were very desirable uh, in, in their walk with the Lord. Verse two, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. You have perceived persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. And that's an apt description of, of, of the, the disciples and apostles during that uh, first century from the time of the Messiah till about again 100 AD. They were working labor and laboring diligently. They had patience. They went through trials. Uh, they could not bear those who were evil. They even tested those who um, were liars, right? We have a, an example there in the book of Acts where Ananias and Sapphira lied about how much offering they gave to the Lord. Peter called them out on it. They continued to lie to his face and they were, they were both struck dead right on the spot. And very similar again how it's described there. They tested them and uh, the apostles tested them and they were found to be liars. Right? And that might have happened in actual physical Ephesus as well, something similar. Uh, we don't have a specific record of that. Um, and you have persevered in patience and labored for God's name and having grown weary, right? The disciples, all of them became martyrs according to um, tradition that we believe that uh, Fox's books of martyrs and that, uh, that they all died, that they all persevered except John who lived until death, uh, that uh, they did not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you've left your first love. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do not and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. 
but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Okay, so a bunch of stuff here he's describing. Again, the, uh, the little rebuke here. He has this against you. You've left your first love, right? And so the believers in the beginning, they had this zeal, this first love experience, like uh, most of us have experienced when we first come to the Lord. It's so exciting. It just dramatically changes our life. We're just filled with the Holy Spirit. He empowers us to make changes in our lives and gives us love for other people. And we begin to demonstrate that love. But then as we continue on in our walk with the Lord, it can become plateauing and we can end up backsliding and losing that first love if we take our eyes off of him. Well, again, we get to about 100 AD and the believers began to lose that fervor. They were not going forth as missionaries as much as they had been before. And so he's rebuking them on that. And again, it might have uh, been applicable to the physical congregation of Ephesus as well. And again, it's a good message for us as well, that God knows our patience, he knows our works, he knows our labors, he knows what we're about, and he knows how we endure through trials and, and, and that we need to test and test everything and test uh, everything by the word of God. And also we should not lose that first love experience. There's no reason that we have to. If we stay connected to the Lord each and every morning and each and every day and throughout the day, there's no reason for us to lose that fervor for the Lord. Remember where we have, how we have fallen, repent, and do the first works, right? So if we have lost that first love, if we take our eyes off the Lord, he's got a simple solution to us. Repent, come back to the Lord, re-embrace us, he'll refill us, and put us back on the right track. Or else I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. And that's a kind of uh, interesting statement. In other words, that a, congreg a whole congregation can lose its place with, in God's position, with their position with God. If we don't repent, if we turn back from God, if we lose that first love, if we go back into the world, he can remove our lampstand. He can remove the light from us unless we repent. Right? So there's that uh, option there that we can repent. But if we don't, it can be blotted out. We can be, remove our spot. And then it says in the verse 6 there, but you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we don't have exact knowledge of exactly who the Nicolaitans were or how that got started. Uh, there's some theories that it might have gone back to the deacon uh, Nicholas that's mentioned in the Bible. But beyond his name as mentioned as a deacon, we don't have any record that he lost his way and came up with a false doctrine. But, uh, but the doctrine, the teaching of the Nicolaitans was basically that just believe in God, and that's all that matters. If as long as you have faith in Him, believe in Him, it doesn't matter how you live, it doesn't matter what you do, you can't uh, lose your salvation, just stay with Him, you just keep believing, you just have your faith in Him, and there's no need for works, there's no need for the law. And here it says that they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, whom God also hates. So God hates that doctrine, it's not in harmony with the Word of God. It's not in harmony with, with grace and truth mixed together. It's not in harmony with, with, uh, with faith and love and God's Word all harmonizing together. It's not justification and sanctification. It's, it's a, uh, a false teaching. Just believe. doesn't matter how you live. And so God hates it, and so did they. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the congregations. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay, so again, this phrase that we'll see over and over again seven times, to him as a hear, ear, let him hear, right? So God wants us to hear these messages. They're for us. He's not trying to hide them from us. He's not trying to scare them with us. He doesn't want us to avoid it, but he wants us to hear. In each age, he has a message for us. That's why I think it's beautiful and 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 and. It, I did hear, read that, uh, that understanding the congregations this way in a pattern from prophetically from John's day to the end of time goes all the way back to, to, to the early uh, interpreters of the Bible. That was uh, a belief that this had a message to take us down to his coming. And so that's important for us because it shows that God cares about everybody that he cares down through the ages. He didn't take a break after the book of Acts was written. He didn't take a break after the Bible was fully written and then, and then 
you know, go on vacation for 1900 years and then just come back on the scene at the very end of time. But no, it shows that he's been active in the people of God's lives all down for the last 2000 years and really with the rest of the Bible from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve to our day today, to you and me, he has been active, his eyes have been upon us, he's been among us and he is with us and he knows our works and he knows our trials and he knows our situation and he loves us. And he promises to give us to him that overcomes. Again, that's totally different than what the Nicolaitans were teaching. There's no need to overcome, just believe. But to all congregations, to him that overcometh, to him that overcometh, to him that overcometh, I will give to the tree of life. And so the tree of life taking us again back to the Garden of Eden concept where the tree of life was and God will give us everlasting life that we'll eat in the paradise of God. He's given us the promise of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth restored. That we have that hope. We'll be able to believe, be with him and eat from that tree of life. Next congregation, verse 8. To the angel of the congregation of Smyrna, which means mirth, write these things, says he that is the first and the last who was dead and came to life. And this will go from about 100 AD to 313. And there's a reason that 313 uh, was chosen. And we'll see here in a few minutes why right out of this message to this congregation. I know your works, tribulation, poverty, but you are rich. So again, God knows us. He sees us and he knows our situation and he knows uh, what the reality is and whether we're going through poverty, but we're still rich in faith or vice versa. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Now, there's some people who want to say, oh, you're rebuking the Jews here. But again, if this is revelation, this is prophetic, and you get all these symbolism, he's walking among menorahs, and he, you know, giving all these various different promises. And so it's symbolic language that we have to see this in. And again, if this is a, to the congregation of, of Smyrna, not to Jerusalem, um, he might probably speaking not only not specifically to Jews in, in Judaism. Again, this is a message to the congregations, to believers in the Messiah, uh, which there were obviously a lot of Jews, but not necessarily up in Smyrna, which is in today's modern day Turkey, uh, which is then Asia, but to professed believers. And that's basically what he's saying. Here you say that you are among God's people, but you're not. Be really of the synagogue of Satan. Sort of like Judas, right? Now, Judas was a literal Jew, but he was of the congregation of the Lord, professing to be a follower, professing to be a disciple. But really, he was following his own whims. He was following Satan's temptations. He was following satanic desires, right? And we've had that problem. The same with, again, as we already mentioned, Ananias and Sapphira, another good example. Professing to be a believer, professing to walk with the Lord, professing to be part of the congregation, and in reality, they were just lying and doing it for show and doing it for you know, various different selfish reasons. Do not fear those things which are you are about to suffer. Well, that's a little hint. It's telling them there's time coming. You're going to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulations 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Okay, so he says you're going to be tested, the devil's going to test you, and you're going to have tribulation for 10 days. Now, we've already covered Daniel and the book of Daniel, and we saw a lot of time prophecies in Daniel, and we saw a principle uh, when looking at time prophecies in Daniel and Revelation, how long does the day equal in these time prophecies? A year, very good. So 10 days is talking prophetically about how long a period of time? 10 years, right. Well, it's, it's saying that there's going to be a time of tribulation. Uh, sort of like, again, in, in, uh, when we were in the wilderness, God sent the spies. They searched out the land 40 days. And then when the people refused to go into take the land of Canaan, he said, you're going to wander in the wilderness 40 years, a year for every day that the spies were there. Right. So you got that prophetic aspect there. Um, and so for 10 days, so the... Um, under the emperor Diocletian, 
there were tribulations, there were trials, but then when this emperor Diocletian comes on the scene, he persecuted believers really intensely, um, really put on the pressure, and there were many murdered, many were put in prison, many were martyrs, many were killed, and uh, it lasted exactly 10 years, from 303 to 313. And that's why we put that as the end of this time period. And there's again kind of a, a link that uh, we see that this representing the various time periods down through the ages. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the congregation. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And that's certainly comforting to a time period that's going to go through persecutions and many of them are going to die you're not gonna be hurt by the second death. You're gonna be hurt maybe by the first death. You might have a cruel death, a horrible death, a, a torturous death, but don't fear death. You're not gonna to have to go through the second death. Right? To him that overcomes. Right? And that's a great assurance for us as well. That we don't have to fear the second death because the Messiah has experienced the second death for us. And I think it was this congregation where he started off, I am the one who is alive and, and is and was dead and is alive, right? And so he experienced that second death for us, and he is alive, and thus, even though we die, we will live again and not have to go through that eternal separation from God, that second death experience. Verse 12, the angel of the congregation of Pergamos, which means elevated, right? These things says he who is, has a sharp two-edged sword. Okay, so Pergamos going from 313 to 538. Now there's a pretty famous emperor that I think many of us know the name of who reigned in this time period somewhere between 313 and 538. Anyone know who I'm talking about? What emperor do you know that, that reigned in that time period? What? Nero. Nero was before this. Well, maybe he might have been, but that's not the one I'm thinking of. In the 300s, a little hint there. What's that? Constantine, yes. Constantine during this time period. And so, what did Constantine do to believers? What did he do to the faith? What did he do to the congregation of, as a whole of the believers? Right? We were persecuted and dressed down, and he has this vision, and he becomes a believer as a result, and he wins a battle, that he believes had to do with that, and he paints a, a cross on the swords, and he takes his whole army, and he marches them through a river, and says, now you are all baptized, you are now all Christians, and he's elevated Christianity from a persecuted religion to the state religion. And again, that's what the word Pergamos means. And again, fitting aptly during that time period. But God is there with a two-edged sword. <laughs> and it's the word of God that counts. Verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now this picture, then I'll go back one, this picture is, uh, is not in Turkey, but this is the entrance to the temple uh, that was there in Pergamos. And uh, Barbara and I walked up those steps, I took that picture, and that is, again, not in Turkey, that is in Germany. <laughs> it was moved from Pergamos uh, in what's now today's Turkey and moved to Germany, and it's well-preserved in this museum, which is called the Pergamos uh, Museum. And there's a bunch of other stuff there as well. Uh, things from Babylon, interesting museum. So this is what it looked like. Again, it's very well preserved and very beautiful, but there was a lot of different types of pagan worships done there. And from what some of the history I read, that a number of different pagan religions from various different parts of the world, when they were being conquered or had difficulty, they moved to Pergamos. So there was a bunch of different stuff coming into this city, and the scriptures here saying where Satan's throne is. But hold fast to my name, no matter what your situation. Again, a personal application for us. No matter where we're at, no matter who your boss is, right? No matter who your neighbor is, no matter who your mayor is, no matter who, what under situation we're under, 
might even be Satan himself, but we can still hold to God, the faith in God. We can still hold fast to his name and not have to deny him, no matter what the circumstances, whether we're going through a time with Diocletian type of people or, or Constantine type people, we can maintain the faith through it all. And that's a great message throughout this, that God is demonstrating that he has had people of faith all through the ages, bringing us his word. Now, it mentions this Antipas, who is a faithful martyr. Now, we don't have any historical documents yet of an actual physical person named Antipas who lived in Pergamos, who died as a martyr. But we take that word apart, Antipas means anti-father, which can be against father or with father. Um, and anti doesn't, and we'll see that as we get into the anti-Messiah, anti doesn't always mean against. It can mean with, um, or in place of, or like. Um, for example, um, when we take an antibiotic, we're not wanting it to work against our body. Right? We're wanting it to work with our antibodies, our natural immune system, to work with it, or even in place of it. Our immune system is not fighting well enough. It's not able to kill that virus or disease or whatever the problem. And so we'll take something to work with it, and we'll call it an antibiotic. Right? So that's an uh, example of that. So he's called antipos. Well, what was coming on the scene during this time period, from 313 within to 538? What's coming on the scene in 538 and, and, and beginning prior? From what we did in Daniel and Revelation? Correct. The church begins to form into, uh, with the Pope, so apostle, anti-father, right? So like father, right? So the representation of the father here, uh, but here he's referred to as a faithful martyr who's killed among them. Maybe standing up against someone who's standing against this. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to hold, to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you have with those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Okay, so a bunch of stuff here too. It mentions that the, the, he has this against them because they have the doctrine of Balaam. Well, what was the doctrine of Balaam? Right, so again, it's, it's, symbol, it's talking symbolism here and referring us back to the Bible. Balaam is mentioned when we're wandering through the wilderness, going through the wilderness. Uh, Balak, this, this leader, I think over Moab, um, calls upon Balaam to go and curse, he's a prophet, to curse Israel. And at first Balaam resists, and then they offer him more money, and then he finds a way to be able to go, and he goes, and his donkey rebukes him and tries to keep him from going, and his donkey yells at him after he's beaten his donkey, and so he's the one who had the donkey talk to him, and he ends up going, and he ends up trying to curse Israel, but every time he opens his mouth three different times to curse Israel, blessings flow out, and we have those recorded, and even one of them is a very powerful uh, messianic prophecy that comes right out of the mouth of Balaam. Right? So God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through Balaam, who's trying to curse Israel, and a blessing comes forth. But what is then this doctrine of Balaam? Because then Balaam goes on, and he says, you know, this isn't working, and he plots with Balak, and the reason we're not able to curse Israel is because they're living faithfully to God. They're overcoming. But if we can get them not to overcome, if we can get them to lose their first love, if we can get them to backslide, if we can get them to take their eyes off the Lord, if we can get them to live carnally and sinfully, then God's curse will come upon them. And so they send some of the women in to seduce some of the men, and it works, and a plague begins to break out, and even a man come, young man comes boldly with one of the women right before Moses and Aaron, and goes into a tent before them, and one of Aaron's sons, Phineas, goes in with a spear and puts the spear through both of them at the same time and stops the plague. So this doctrine of Balaam, this compromising, this mixing of God's people with the people of the world, the mixing of God's truth with the truth or the, the, the false lies and of, of paganism and things of this world. And that's exactly what started to happen during this time with Constantine mixing things in. He wanted to unite his kingdom. He wanted everyone to 
be as many as possible, you just get a mass majority, and so you have these pagans, you have these Christians, you have these Jews, and so he brings Christianity and paganism together. And that's how come still today we have things such as idols in, in, in churches, in some churches, because they, they had, the pagans had these idols, and they, they didn't want to give them up, and so he said, okay, well, what was there was Zeus, you called Zeus, we're going to just change his name. You continue to pray to him, you continue to go and, and, and touch him and, and kiss him and stuff like that, but he won't be Zeus anymore, he's now going to be Peter. And so this is mixing. And you got this statue of this lady holding a baby, well, now we'll make her Mary and, and, and baby Jesus. And you, you pray to be, to use beads for your prayers, to count your prayers, and so we'll just bring that in and we'll just have it to prayers uh, to God and, and, and various different things such as that. And so bringing these various aspects in took place within this 200-year period of time and some more, some after and later, uh, this creeping compromise coming in. And that's what Balaam did. If he can get them to sin, if he can bring the women in and get them to mix, then the curse will come upon them. And so, uh, thus you hold to those doctrines of the Nicolaitans. And so again, it's just don't, it's not so much, you don't have to be victorious over sin, you don't have to overcome, you just keep on giving donations, you just keep on coming to confessionals, you just keep doing the, the various basic rituals, this religiosity, and you just believe in God and take on the name, that's all that really matters. You don't have to necessarily follow all the commandments of God. And again, that's some of the doctrines that creeped in through this time period. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, with the word of God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the congregations. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So we'll give him manna, again, harking back to the time when we are in the wilderness. Remember the time of the manna? I gave you manna. He went fell for Balaam's trick, get back on course and eat the word of God. Eat what I am providing for you. Stay faithful to me. I will provide for all of your needs. And I'll even give you a white stone and I'll put a new name on it, which no one else will know. Now in the Bible, often names were a reference of the person's character. Jacob grabbing hold of his brother, tricking, tripping him. So he's called the tripper, or the trickster, right? And, uh, and then God changes his name from one who trips people up to one who overcomes with God, a prince with God. That's the name symbolic of their character. So he's going to give us a new name. And I believe each one of us will have a unique name that will symbolize the character that God has developed in us, the various talents and abilities that God has placed in us. Now, sometimes today, people name their children uh, faith or hope, right? And so uh, if that's the characteristic that is lived out, that God lives out through us, then that's be the name. We'll have a unique name that will describe us perfectly in how God has manifested his grace through us. To the angel of the congregation of Thyatira, which means sacrifice, these things says the Son of God, with eyes like fire and his feet like brass, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. And so this time period, going from 538 to a long period of time, to 16, uh, uh, 1600, which is about the time of the Reformation. Again, these are again not set exact dates, um, but the time of the Reformation. And so the the last works better than the first. So through this time period, is known as the Dark Ages, when the church began to lock up the Bible and persecute anyone who was reading the Bible, persecuting both Jews uh, who didn't believe in the Messiah at that point in history, Yeshua as the Messiah, and would persecute them and, 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 and relegate us to various cities and areas. Uh, and so persecution of anyone, and, and even Christians who tried to read the Bible, they'd be persecuted, and the Bible being outlawed. So they were, remained working and loving and serving God and faithful to God. And again, Jewish people remaining faithful to God through that time, not eating 
Well, the Bible tells us not to eat, remaining reading the Torah even while it's outlawed and being persecuted for it, keeping the Sabbath holy. So God had faith through this time period, a very difficult time period. And at the end of this time period, the last is even better than the first, where again, Reformation, the Bible being printed and distributed and in the language of the people and great uh, reformations taking place. I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. So here again, we see the symbolism, right? You have, you allow that woman Jezebel. Well, I don't think there was a lady physically named Jezebel uh, living uh, in this city at that time and attending that congregation. But he's talking again about the symbolism of the Jezebel in the Bible, who was a queen of Israel and yet brought in Baal worship and, um, and had prophets of Baal and, and were killing the prophets of God, killing those who were speaking up for the word of God. And so again, representing during the dark ages, um, professing to be, again, of the people of God and the leader of the people of God, but bringing in false teachings and false doctrine, right? So this uh, sexual immorality, right? That God wants us to be faithful to him. And if we're aligning ourselves with him and with someone else, right? That's this spiritual idolatry that's taking place and immorality, uh, sexual immorality that, uh, that we're doing. God is a jealous God and he wants us to be married to him and to him alone. I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the congregation shall know that I am he who searched the minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. And we've seen that according to our works. We've seen that in other texts as we've gone through the book of Daniel, that he will come and he will judge and he will give everyone according to their works. We're saved by faith, but that faith is demonstrated and lived out and tested through our actions and how it's lived out. And so this woman, again, this Jezebel system, we'll see here in Revelation as we get further down in, in the chapters, there is a woman who rides on a beast, again, it's symbolism. And so again, here we have this woman, this Jezebel type of a woman, and it's again symbolic of the same time period, which again, when we get to that woman riding on the beast, it'll match up with this time period as well. So again, Revelation will, just like Daniel, will all correlate together. Verse 24, as many as you have done this doctrine who have not known the depths of Satan, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Okay, so he's not going to put anything more. You've gotten such a, such a difficult time and dark ages and such falsehood and, and such superstition and not having the word of God. He doesn't put, I'm not going to put any more burden upon you. I'm not going to put a rebuke upon you. You've gone through enough. Just hold fast what you have until I come. Just hold fast. Right? And so that's a good message for us as well. And here we're seeing... And first introducing that we're getting close to, closer to the end of this sequence of time periods from John's day to the end of time. Starting the first mention of till I come. Right, so now we're getting the 1600s and there's a hope he's coming. He's going to come soon. He's going to deliver us. He's going to come back for us. And we'll see that intensify as we go from congregation to congregation from here on out. And he who overcomes and keeps my works till the end. He who endures till the end. He gives power over the nation. And so again, a message to the overcomer. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. As I have received from my father, I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the congregations. And one of the reformers was uh, referred to as the morning star of the Reformation. I forget which one 
that was. Uh, but here we have again this time period matching up, this word phrase being used here, and then uh, believers uh, using that phrase to describe that uh, reformer during within this time period. Uh, and again, it says he'll destroy that Jezebel woman, and that's what we've seen also in Daniel 2, the statue being destroyed, the uh, Daniel 7, the, the beast power being destroyed, and so also this religious compromise, false religions, will be destroyed once and for all. Okay, into chapter 3, verse 1, the next congregation, the Sardis congregation. To the angel of the congregation of Sardis, which means things that remain, things that made it through the dark ages and have remained, those that have remained faithful, write these things as he that has seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. And this takes us to 1798. Now, 1798 is the end. Again, we did this in the book of Daniel. And again, if you missed any of that, go back to Shalom Adventure. And in the search, just type in Daniel sermons, and they'll all come up. But from 538 to 1798 is the 1260-year prophecy, right? Which, 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 which ended with... Uh, with the beast power receiving a deadly wound, a temporary deadly wound. And so that takes us to this end of this next congregation. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that you are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Okay, so here again, now he's talking, as a, I'll come as a thief. Yeshua used that phrase, that his coming will be like as a thief in the night. And so again, we're seeing uh, imagery pointing them forward to he's coming again, he's coming again. We're getting closer to that time. You have a few in Sardis who haven't defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white and are worthy. Overcomers shall be clothed in white, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the congregations. So not much written for the Sardis uh, group here. Um, again, whether literally the Sardis congregation or, or in the historical time period, but just that there are a few that have not defiled their garments. They've come through that again, the dark ages, come through out of, out of that, have remained faithful to God, and will be clothed in white, and they are worthy, and he will not blot their name out from the book of life. Kind of like, I'll remove your, your candle. Here again, he says, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. Well, if he says, I will not blot your name out, then that means that it is possible that he could blot someone's name out. And so as a whole congregation, have the whole candlestick removed, or individuals, their name, our name, could be blotted out if we don't repent, if we lose our first love, if we turn away from the Lord, if we don't uh, overcome by his strength, by his grace, by his power. The Philadelphia congregation, the angel of the congregation of Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. Write these things, says he who is holy, he is true, he who has a key to David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Right? So this is an opening. That's again a reference to out of Revelation chapter 1, but this door opening here. Now we have an opening door taking place, and that's taking place from 1798 to 1844. Again, a time period where, where the beast power is wounded and great reformations taking place around the world. We have the Wesley brothers uh, coming into America and, and, and great revivals taking place. People like William Miller, people like Charles uh, uh, fin, Finney, fin, Finley, fin, Finney. Finney, Charles Finney, thank you. Uh, and in America, again, great revivals. It's so much so that the congregations couldn't hold them all, all the people coming. As these various different speakers would go from city to city, they'd have to put out in the fields. They'd have to open up a farm and have um, the masses of people come and listen, put up tents for them to sit under and speak under. Great revivals taking place here in America and other parts of the world through that time. Brotherly love. Word of God was going forth. 
I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. This door had opened up during that time and no one could shut it. The word of God, they kept the word. It's during this time that the missionary society, the American Missionary Society was formed. The British Missionary Society was formed. The um, Bible societies were formed. And the gospel began to go around the world. And now today, so during the dark ages, the Bible was locked up. Today it's impossible to totally lock it up. It, the door has been opened to the Word of God, translated in so many languages, translated so thoroughly in so many books, in so many homes, in so many different ways, and on the internet, and on clouds, and everywhere and anywhere, on people's phones and, and computers. There's no way they'd be able to eradicate it again. The door has been opened to the Word of God, and no one can shut it. Again, fitting this time period very accurately. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. And here again, in this time period in, in, in the congregation in, in literal one back in John's day, uh, I don't think it's talking literal Jews here, but again, those who believe or are professing to believe, but are not. And again, we've seen that down through the ages and maybe even in our own lives. We've had a first love experience and then it's just become routine and but we just kept on going to the services just as we have, just continue doing the things of God. For again, we can have lots of different motives and not necessarily a godly motive for attending services, giving to the Lord um, and walking through the steps. But we're lying to ourselves and lying to the Lord. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Okay, so we saw it to the congregation before this. I am coming. Here he's saying, I am coming quickly. Right, so we're getting closer. And he's saying, I will keep you from the hour from the trial, from the hour of the trial, right? What, what tense is that? I will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world. Future tense, right? So you're saying there's gonna be another congregation after you. Philadelphia, the sixth one, but there's gonna be a seventh one. And I'm gonna keep you from what that seventh one is gonna have to experience. I'm gonna stop it before, your, your timeline is gonna stop before that tribulation comes, before that hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world. And we read about that in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. A time of trouble such as the world has never seen. The hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And then he comes quickly after that. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him my new name of God, uh, the name of my God, in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the congregations. Once again, we see him talking in symbolic terms. He's not talking about a literal Jerusalem. He uses the phrase new Jerusalem. Right? He's again here talking in the future, which will come down, which comes down from God out of heaven. Um, and it's to him that overcomes. And he will write his name not only will he give us a new name, he writes his name on us. When does a person generally in our society receive a new name? Or the person, or someone's name, someone else's name? At marriage, right? At marriage, right? So he gives us a new name and then he also places his name upon us, right? So the, generally in our society, the wife will take on the husband's name. So he comes for the bride and then we take on his name. We'll be called by his name. And that's such an amazing privilege that he'd want that God, the God of the universe, the self-existent one who's existed from before this earth, long before this earth ever was, and he wants to place his name upon us, that he wants to marry us, that he's called us, that he loves us, 
with that much love. And he'll also place the name of his city. In other words, we'll have residence in his city. And we'll have a card that has his name and the name of where we, right? Our new name, his name, and the name of our residence, where we live, the new Jerusalem. The last congregation, chapter 3, verse 14, to the angel of the congregation of the Laodiceans, which means judged people, a time of God's judgment, taking us right to the very end. Write these things that says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. It's interesting there, reference to the creation at a time period where we're living now where, where creation is being denied. And so this takes us from the 1844 to the very end. This is the last congregation, right? There are seven congregations. There's no other congregation. There's no eighth congregation, right? This is it. This is the seventh. And this is the time we're living in. We're living in this time of Laodicea. Judged people, the time of God's judgment. I know your works, so he knows all about us. You know, he's telling John long ago, he knows us today. He knows you, he knows me. And that you were neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I vomit you out of my mouth. Now, my understanding, and, and again, I haven't been to this area uh, of the world to see it for myself, but I'm told that where this congregation was, the city of Laodicea, there were some hot springs that the water flowed down to the city of Laodicea by the time it got down there, it was no longer hot. It took a while to get down there, and it became lukewarm. Hey, have you ever gone to a hot spring, natural springs? They're beautiful, wonderful, very, feels great. Uh, they're not too hot, <laughs> and you can temper it. But by the time it got down to the city, it's now lukewarm. And hot, hot is, you know, good. Hot will purify, right? It's so hot, it boils out any bacteria. Boiled water, right? And so you can drink it, even if it was bad at one point. You boil it, boil it out. And cold, cold, it can be frozen and preserved, right? And it tastes good. But lukewarm, sitting water, lukewarm water, right? That's where it turns green and bacteria begins to grow, right? And to lukewarm, we don't usually drink lukewarm waters, right? People will have a hot drink or a cold drink, but lukewarm, he spits it out. And that's aptly describing the religious situation of today, of those who are professing to follow God today. We're even in this professed country where take a survey across the nation and the majority would say they believe in the Bible. But in the same survey, or count how many people are in a in religious service on any weekend through the year, and the numbers do not match up. Those who say they profess to believe in God and dramatically different numbers of those who are actually attending on a regular basis. Lukewarm. Neither hot, neither on fire for the Lord, neither totally in denial or cold, but just lukewarm. Going along with the world. Compromising with the world. Doing the things of the world. Right? Halloween's a good example of that. Here, again, a professed nation, you get, again, the survey of how many people believe in the Bible, well then who are all these people buying all this Halloween stuff? Right? Or, or all this pornography? Or watching all these X-rated movies? And, and participating in all these things that are obviously ungodly and unbiblical. If it's not those who are, or have their feet in both camps, trying to be, have their feet in both camps. Right? And if you put your one foot in hot water and the other foot in cold water, you're not going to be comfortable. <laughs> it doesn't balance out. Right? And so it's trying to balance too. So believing in God and then also living for the world and the pleasures of this world and the carnal nature. So this is a very good description of how God feels about it. We're not conquering in the world. We're not overcoming. We're not taking the gospel to the world. We're not going forth as, as again, as the congregation of Ephesus describing that first, first love experience. Nor the reformers taking the word of God and printing the word of God at the risk of their lives and becoming martyrs and dying. We're just going along and living just like the world, but professing to believe. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. 
right? And so the religious communities today, we say we're rich, we're wealthy, we have faith, we have the grace of God, we're rich. And then on the physical level, oh, we're rich, we don't have a need of anything. I know we got padded seats and air conditioning and some congregations even have restaurants inside them. You know, we have need of nothing. Right? We pay the minister to do the work. We'll pay some people to clean the building. And, and um, you know, we, we have need of nothing. We're rich. We're fine. We're good. And yet, the Bible says, we're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And of that description, which one is the worst? Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, or naked? The worst part, as you do not know it, <laughs> which goes along with blind, but is that we don't even know that we're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. If we were blind and we knew we were blind, that wouldn't be so bad. If we were naked and knew we were naked, at least we could do something about it. If we're blind, we can get some help. If we're naked, we can put on some clothes. You know, like the, the king, the the emperor's new clothes, right? He doesn't know that he's naked. He thinks he's, he's clothed in this invisible garment. It takes a little kid to reveal it to him. And same here. We don't know, our, we don't know how bad we are in our condition. And that's the worst part, because we think we're okay. We think we're spiritually okay. And again, the majority of these people who have, we have our feet in, 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 in the world and with God, we still think we're saved. We think we're okay. Well, God loves us. God knows my heart. No laws matter anymore. The teachings of the Nicolaitans, just believe, and I believe, and that's all that matters. My lifestyle doesn't matter. Overcoming doesn't matter. Yeshua did it all. That's common teachings today. And thus we're wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. We don't have the clothing of the Messiah. We don't have the righteousness of Yeshua over us. We don't see spiritually, not reading the word of God. We're poor. We don't have the Holy Spirit filling us and empowering us. We're relying on our own abilities and our own riches and our own talents. And we're miserable at the same time. We're not filled with the Holy Spirit and we're trying to profess to believe in God and live like the world. That's a miserable condition because guilt, the Holy Spirit is convicting us and we're resisting it and being in denial. And I'm okay. And that's a wretched condition to be in. Miserable condition to be in. And God wants to spit it out. And that's aptly describing the situation in this country. And this country is the most biblical literate country, one of the most, in the world today. Percentage-wise. And it's miserable. God knew it. God knows our works. He saw it way back in John's day, and he's describing what it'll be like at the end of time. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that your shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and to anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. He gives a description of how we can solve our problem of being wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Get the gold, and we won't be poor anymore. He says, buy, but if we're poor, how can we buy the gold? God has provided it. Buy with him, buy from him without money and without cost. Receive by faith, gold, faith, gold tried in the fire, faith tried in the fire. The white garment, receive his robe that he has provided for us to cover our sins, to cover our nakedness. And to anoint our eyes that we may see the Holy Spirit touching our eyes and opening our eyes. That we may see him in this entire book. That we may see him in the entire Bible. That we may see him all the time. That he becomes first and foremost in our lives. That we love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. That he becomes the Lord over every aspect of our lives. That we surrender all to him. 
that we can be renewed in him and become overcomers by his grace, by his power, by his love. Receiving of his forgiveness because he died that second death for us. He can transform us and change us, and I believe he will. He will have a remnant that will make it through and shine brightly for him as we heed his counsel. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. It's those who he loves that he rebukes. It's those that he loves that he corrects. Oh, how much different than, than what is being taught today about love. Oh, love, just accept me. If you really love me, you'd let me live the way I live. If you really love me, you wouldn't rebuke me. If you really love me, you wouldn't condemn me. If you really love me, you wouldn't say anything about my lifestyle. You wouldn't say anything about my choices. You would just accept me and embrace me in. No, but true love loves the person. God loves us enough to change us and transform us. He loves us with an everlasting love. And true love truly helps the person. Truly helps us to deliver us from our carnal nature and our sinful attitudes and our sinful desires and change us into his likeness. So be zealous and repent of our sins and our sinful way. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. No longer I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming quickly. I am here. I am standing at the door and I'm knocking on the door. Right? So again, we see the sequence of the congregations taking us to the very end, the last day. No longer saying I will keep you from the tribulation. You will go through it, but I will, I am here. I'm knocking at the door. He's coming again. And also, he's coming right now for us. He's knocking on our hearts. He wants to come in. He wants to live inside us. He loves us. He's not just rebuking and saying, oh, you're lukewarm, I'll just spit you out and be done with you. And I'll find something else. I'll create another planet. No, he perseveres and he longs and he counsels and he gives and he sacrifices and he experiences second death for us and he pours out his Holy Spirit towards us and he continues to come to us and continues to correct and encourage. And out of love, he rebukes. And then he comes and knocks continually on our door, reminding us, drawing us, begging us to let him in. When we let the Holy Spirit in, when we let him come into us and let him change us from the inside out, it makes all the difference in the world. Our eyes open up and we see the whole world differently. And he gives us the ability to be faithful and steadfast to all circumstances and situations. To make it through the trials and dark ages and dark times in our own personal lives. To love those who are unlovable to have perseverance to the very end, to be patient, to trust the word of God, and to overcome all sin by his grace and his power. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I have also overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the congregations. to sit with him on his throne. Amazing, amazing grace. How powerful that is. I read an article in the newspaper today that the president called someone and the person wrote, yeah, what experience that was, to be called by the president, to spend 20 minutes on the phone with him. What a privilege it was. 20 minutes with a human being. God takes us and sits us on his throne with him, elevates us, lifts us up, us, 
you and me, sinful, carnal natures, have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He takes us and he marries us and he brings us to his side, wraps his arms around us and lets us reign with him and be with him. What a high privilege. Again, this person thought so highly of this phone call for 20 minutes. He didn't, wasn't appointed vice president. <laughs> he didn't call him up and say, I want you to be my vice president. He just talked to him for 20 minutes. God takes us and elevates us, brings us up, and seats us at his throne. What love he has for us. And there's more in store. We're still basically just in the beginning of revelation, of demonstrations of God's love for us. Here's an outline. We'll see this more and more with Daniel 2, from Daniel's day to the end of time, and then Daniel 7, Daniel 8 and 9, Daniel 10 and 11, and then we just did Revelation 2 and 3. Let us have closing prayer together. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, thank you for being concerned with every stage of Earth's history. We're thankful, Lord, that you were concerned for people down through the ages, that you knew us, that you have your eyes on us, you know our works, you know the martyrs down through the ages, you know the trials, you know the things that we've gone through. And since you knew about all of them, you also know about each of us. Thank you for knowing us and loving us. Thank you for rebuking us. Thank you for drawing us. Thank you for providing for us. Thank you for encouraging us. Thank you for all these wonderful promises. Fulfill them in our lives. Let us eat from the tree of life. Write on us your new name. Transform our characters. Write on us your name. And may people see you in us. Come into our hearts and minds. In Yeshua's holy name. Amen.